in Mark chapter 2. Jesus sat in a room full of sinners, disciples, and critics. Three kinds of people that would never be in close proximity to one another if it wasn't for this rabbi and teacher. The occasion is a dinner in the home of Levi or Matthew, a former tax collector for the Roman Empire turned follower of Christ after two simple words, follow me. It's in this setting that the scribes of the Pharisees have a bone to pick with Jesus over who he chooses to associate with. It was one thing to ask a tax collector to join his crew, but it's an entirely different thing for this supposed holy man to be enjoying communion around the table with sinners and tax collectors. And so these critics gossip in the ear of Jesus' disciples about the sinners present. They just couldn't help themselves, even without the ease of the internet to hide behind. But Jesus overhears them. He hears their slander, and in response, he reveals something about himself, something about his mission, something about who he is. Mark chapter 2, verse 17 says, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus has been called many things, many titles, many originating from the Bible itself, titles like Lord and Savior, Messiah, King, Prince of Peace, Light of the World, and many others. But some are given to Jesus that don't necessarily appear verbatim on the text of Scripture. One of these is the great physician. Perhaps you've heard of that title before. Jesus is the great physician. Jesus healed people, lots of people, in fact, of real-world infirmities and ailments during his tenure on earth, and you probably didn't need me to tell you that. If you've ever heard a story about Jesus, it more than likely entailed him healing someone in a miraculous, supernatural, unexplainable way. And these remarkable stories of Jesus as a healer usually have a bit of drama peppered in them by the gospel writers to spice them up just a little bit. Stories like a group of friends who tore apart a roof to lower someone they knew who was paralyzed so that Jesus would see him and heal him. Stories like the woman who was bleeding for 12 years and all she had to do was simply touch Jesus' garments to heal what doctors could not. Stories like the 10 lepers who were cleansed by Jesus of their skin disease, but only one of them came back to Jesus and thanked him for healing him. Stories like the blind man outside Jericho crying out and making a ruckus simply for Jesus, son of David, to notice him, which annoyed the crowds who tried to shush him up. But Jesus hears his cries and restores his sight. 
In the Gospels, Jesus is healing people of fevers, withered hands, blindness, muteness, deafness, demon possession, leprosy, perpetual bleeding, and much more. He was doing things that even today would still mystify even the smartest of medical minds. Jesus wasn't your ordinary physician, but that's not what made him great. The kind of physician Jesus came to be is usually not talked about much, even then, but still now. It gets lost in the shuffle. Among the amazing medical miracles he performed, people were coming to him for the wonder and amazement, not necessarily for the kind of healing the great physician really wanted to prescribe them. Jesus never wanted to be known around the region of Galilee as simply a healer. He wanted to be known as a savior, their savior. Jesus wasn't your ordinary physician. He was a savior. He was seeking to show humanity a way to be saved from their self-inflicted sin problem, to no longer be imprisoned by the shackles of their own depravity, and to walk in freedom and joy and holiness in the presence of God. He was seeking to enlighten people to the cure to humanity's sin crisis, which was contained in himself. And it required repairing the damage sin had inflicted on humanity, and it took living among us. The great physician knew humanity's problem better than humankind did. He knew the diagnosis He saw the symptoms of sin and the lives of human beings and how humans had disregarded God and how humans had treated one another and how humans viewed themselves and how humans were not living the abundant life God originally intended. He knew the prognosis. He knew the inevitable outcome of sin for humanity would be a life of misery and despair, but ultimately death. But he also knew the cure. He knew what needed to be done to heal sinners. He didn't need to wait on a second opinion. The great physician took the case, and it required getting his hands dirty, entering our world, and taking on our flesh. And so this morning, I want to look at one, one of the many case files of the great physician. HIPAA didn't exist when Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were writing their Gospels. So we don't have to worry about violating patient confidentiality this morning. We're going to talk about one of the healings of the great physician, but not merely as amazed bystanders as we usually tend to do with these stories. I want to invite us to look at this story and enter it as disciples. I want us to consider how we cannot simply identify with this afflicted person or the patient in this story but how we can identify with the practices of the healer in this story. How do we go from being patients of the great physician to actually being participants or caregivers alongside him? To join him in healing and caring and nurturing souls, I want us to consider doing what Jesus did, healing like Jesus healed. We join Jesus and the disciples as they enter Peter, Andrew, and Philip's hometown of Bethsaida, a village on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. Archaeologists have discovered numerous fishing tools like weighted nets and iron anchors and needles and hooks. 
all indicators of a thriving fishing industry once upon a time. But this should come as no surprise, remembering Peter and Andrew's former line of work before Jesus called them to fish for people. But today is no time for nostalgia for the Bethsaida boys. Business always comes first when you're tagging along with Jesus, even in your hometown. We're not told what Jesus was intending to do that day. Likely he was just passing through, but again, we're not privy to those details. Whatever it was, as quickly interrupted as an anonymous group of people bring a blind man to Jesus and plead for him to touch him. Jesus is accustomed to unannounced strangers bringing him people to help. It's noteworthy that these strangers ask for Jesus' touch as opposed to outright asking for the recovery of his sight. They seem to be aware that with anyone with an ailment merely has to make physical contact with Jesus for their affirmity to dissipate. Maybe they heard about the bleeding woman who touched the fringes of Jesus' clothes to experience relief. Or maybe they heard about the, the deaf man that Jesus cured by touching his ears and tongue. They're now looking at this unnamed blind man, wanting him to be touched by Jesus of Nazareth in a similar way. And the Lord escorts the blind man by the hand outside the city limits, away from the prying eyes, not wanting to make a scene. Jesus removes the blind man from the eavesdropping gaze of any run. This restoration will be between him and the blind man, just the two of them. And it's here. That Jesus does something, perhaps unusual, at least to many of us. The group originally wanted Jesus to touch him, but what the blind man actually got initially was some of Jesus' saliva. Mark tells us that Jesus spat on the blind man's eyes and then laid his hands on him. Now the Bible is not exempt from its fair share of weird or odd stories from time to time. Stories that may raise an eyebrow or make children giggle in children's church or prompt people to try to come stump the pastor with a difficult Bible question. Stories like the time when a prophet named Balaam was hired to put a curse on the Israelites and as he was riding his donkey there, his steed kept changing course and causing him much frustration. But after a while, the donkey finally talked to him and told him, don't you notice the angel in the middle of the road, Balaam? Stories like the left-handed judge Ehud, who assassinated the king of Moab by stabbing him with his sword, leaving it lodged in the king's abdomen, and then the king's fat, Judges chapter 3 says, closed over the blade, and then the king pooped himself. Dead serious, that's in the Bible, Judges chapter 3. Stories like the prophet Elisha, who was harassed and teased by a group of teenage boys for being bald. And then the prophet prays to God, and then suddenly a bunch of bears appear from the woods and then attacked the boys. 2 Kings chapter 2. The, and the stories of Jesus of Nazareth are not immune from something a tad strange. And maybe Jesus spitting on people as part of a healing, maybe that takes the cake. Only a few people can say they've been spat on by Jesus. You probably didn't think you were going to hear that in the sermon, did you? You may be surprised that this is not an isolated incident. The Gospels have Jesus using spit two other times outside of this passage. 
Staying in Mark, you only have to back up a chapter to find a deaf, mute man being brought to Jesus for his healing touch, much like our blind man here in Bethsaida. Mark says Jesus put his fingers in his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. In John chapter 9, Jesus is confronted by a different blind man. Maybe you've heard this story. John says Jesus spat on the ground and made mud with saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and then told the man to wash up and he was healed. For those I have not yet disgusted, it may surprise you that early humans, especially those living in and around the time of Jesus, believed that there was medicinal or therapeutic value to human saliva. They believed that something within human oral secretion, and yes, I found an even more off-putting way to save spit, human oral secretion, had healing or pain-relieving properties. And in a way, and in a weird way, at least to us, Jesus is actually offering the man some much-needed relief from the agony in his eyes. The man was likely not born blind, as later we're told he, could, he knows what people should look like, but his vision impairment could be more of an eye disease than anything else. Jesus spinning on his man's eyes before touching them is actually a pain management treatment before an all-out cure is administered. But I say all that to say Jesus spitting on someone is actually not what makes this episode in Mark so famous or infamous, depending on who you ask. It what's, it's what comes after Jesus spitting that really sets this story in particular apart from not only the rest in the Gospel of Mark, but also the rest of the healing of stories in all the Gospels. Did you catch it? The man's vision is not immediately restored. The man still cannot see clearly. At face value, Jesus' healing does not appear to have worked. Unlike any of the other healings of Jesus, the blind man's vision is not instantaneously cured. The man told Jesus, I see men, but they look like trees walking. His vision is still fuzzy. It's still distorted. It's not crystal clear yet. He still has problems seeing. His vision or his eye disease has, not, has only been marginally improved, and this requires further intervention by Jesus. But notice that Jesus is not surprised by this. He is not startled by this healing, not fully working. Jesus is not embarrassed that his initial touch was not successful. He's not mystified or, or stumped by this outcome. In fact, Jesus seems to anticipate that this might have been a possibility by asking this man one question, do you see anything? And so while the blind man and maybe us may have been concerned, Jesus is far from worried. But what about the blind man? But what about the blind man? Have you ever been disappointed by Jesus? Have you ever been disappointed by Jesus? I wonder if his friends that brought this blind man to Jesus were disappointed. I wonder if the blind man was. I wonder if the blind man was disappointed by the results he received from Jesus' soggy touch that day. Going from not seeing anything to only being able to recognize other people as foliage is not much of an improvement. I wonder 
if he thought Jesus could do more than that or would have done better based on the things he's heard. He had every right to expect more from Jesus. Have you ever felt that way? Maybe you can relate to this blind man. But Jesus isn't through. He's not abandoning the blind man. He's still there, present with him. He's not giving up so long as the blind man doesn't give up on him. He's willing to touch the blind man again, if necessary. Jesus is not leaving until this blind man can see clearly. And Mark tells us that Jesus laid his hands on the blind man's eyes a second time. No additional spit required this time. A saliva-free touch. Jesus touches the blind man's eyes, and the man's vision is fully restored, and he saw everything clearly. No follow-up consultation necessary. No clarifying question this time. No need for any further intervention by Jesus' part. Only instructions to not return to Bethsaida afterwards. This is the only instance in all four Gospels where Jesus' healing does not occur instantaneously. It happens in stages, or there's a, a progression to it. And maybe that's why preachers tend to avoid talking about this story in Mark's gospel. The story may make us nervous or tense if it hasn't already nauseated us. Since it stands in such contrast to the other stories we know about Jesus healing someone, including actually stories of Jesus healing another blind person a couple chapters later in Mark. But what if... What if Mark has a purpose here of telling us this peculiar story about Jesus? What if this healing gives us a glimpse into the operating room of the great physician happening more often than you and I think? Jesus sometimes conveyed parables, not simply with words, but with actions as well. You know what I mean when I say the word parable, right? You may have heard other pastors use this word. A favorite teaching device of Jesus in his earthly ministry was to teach the crowds and his disciples using parables or earthly stories with heavenly meetings. You've likely heard a few of these. God is like a loving father awaiting his lost son to return home. You ought to love your neighbor like God wants you to, like a Samaritan, but not like a Levite or priest crossing on the other side of the road. Awaiting the second coming of Christ is like five wise virgins taking flasks of oil to keep their lamps lit, awaiting the delayed arrival of the bridegroom to the wedding feast in the middle of the night. We may be familiar with Jesus verbally teaching us about God and God's plans through words, but Jesus is also teaching us God and God's plans through lived experiences like with this person, like with this blind man. Now, we should not discount Jesus healing someone of real blindness. Jesus healed this man. Jesus is fully capable of restoring sight to the blind. We're not questioning that fact. But maybe in the background below the surface, I believe this two-stepped, two-phased healing also reflects the kind of healing the great physician does and is doing for and in all people, not only then, but also now. 
Jesus is healing humanity's spiritual vision. Perhaps that's why Jesus' question has two meanings. Do you see anything? Maybe that's why Mark includes this story strategically before Caesarea Philippi. If you keep reading after this story, after this healing of Bethsaida, Jesus and the disciples head a bit further north of Bethsaida to the village called Caesarea Philippi. And at this midway point in Mark's gospel, Jesus inquires as to who the twelve truly think he is. Only certain individuals have proven to clearly see Jesus as the Son of God in Mark's gospel, namely the demons and the unclean spirits. But who do these guys see Jesus as? The guys that know him best, the ones who lived with him day in and day out, who do the twelve see him as? Jesus asks, but who do you say that I am? And after everything they've seen, everything they've experienced, everything they've learned, who is Jesus? And Jesus' prior question, do you see anything, should be echoing in the back of our minds because Mark is a beautiful storyteller. Do the disciples have the vision to see Jesus for who he truly is? And Peter pipes up, as Peter is prone to do on the behalf of the twelve. You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. But hold on a minute. Is Peter seeing clearly? What Peter sees may still be a tad fuzzy like the man who mistakes people for trees walking. Peter's interpretation of the Messiah may not be the same as Jesus' understanding of the Messiah. Peter and the disciples believe Jesus was Israel's long-awaited political savior from the Roman regime. Jesus believed he was the world's long-awaited savior from the regime of sin. Perhaps like the blind man, Peter and the disciples require a second touch still. Their vision is not fully restored. It's still a bit blurry, even halfway through the Gospel of Mark. Maybe you've been in Peter and the disciples' shoes before. Maybe Jesus has touched your life. It may not have involved his saliva, but it may have been unusual, still the same. Either you came to Jesus or someone brought you to his presence. And he took you by the hand and between you and him offered to heal you of the same affliction leeching all human beings, namely the guilt and the power and the nature of sin. And you accepted. Then he touched your life. And in some way and in some form or fashion, Jesus touched your heart, allowing you to better clearly see who he is, what he is doing in this world, who you truly are before sin warped your perception of yourself, and also how to look at other human beings made in the image and likeness of God, just like you. Jesus touched your life. And maybe for you it only took one touch. But many of us needed a second one, an additional intervention of Jesus in our lives. We needed Jesus to touch us again, whether because the marring of sin in our lives was so great, or we backslid for a season or something else while we were touched by God, even baptized even, things were still not fully restored. Our vision was still screwed up. 
This may have been disappointing for you, maybe like the blind man. Frustrated with yourself, with the church, with God himself over things still not being fuzzy after initially coming into contact with Jesus. You, you tell yourself, why am I not acting like a better Christian? Why is my life not better? Why am I still sinning? But the good news is Jesus is still right there willing to touch you again. He hasn't left you. He's not through with you. He hasn't given up on you so long as you haven't given up on him. He's willing to be there as long as it takes. And so Jesus touches your heart again, restoring you more and more until you are a new creation. Jesus touched my life. My parents introduced me to him. And Jesus touched my life. And the rest has been him graciously and routinely touching my life and heart to cure me more and more of the sin that still lives inside me. I needed and still need Jesus regularly to touch me. While I believe I can see Jesus better than I used to, I still need him to restore my vision of him and this world and of myself and of other people. And maybe the same can be said of you this morning. Maybe you're in need of the, of the Savior to touch your heart. But the great physician's healing ministry ought to not stop on us simply being on the operating table, so to speak. It ought to be not to it also include us being with him, healing people. I believe Jesus has constructed a hospital, populated and staffed and facilitated and maintained and operated through the help of the Holy Spirit by patients who are now invited to be nurses. Who better to assist Jesus in healing sinners than, know, than those who know what it's like to be touched by him, even those who needed multiple touches? Who better to be nurses of the great physician than those who have felt his healing power in their lives and can testify about it? The best ministers to me were and still are recovering sinners faithfully serving in the body of Christ. They weren't perfect. They didn't have it all together. These former sinners knew the cost of grace and they repented and they understood the magnitude of what God did for them and are seeking daily to be more holy like him. Yet they're using the memories and reminders of their past against the powers of darkness. They testify to how God allowed them to overcome sin by his grace and whether it be addiction or prejudice or whatever it is, while not dwelling on the sins of their past out of guilt or shame, they are using their story and experiences with God as a means to help other people who feel stuck or are experiencing something similar to them. It helps them sympathize and empathize with others. It fuels their prayers for those they see hurting. They're helping people heal from the wounds and scars that are similar to theirs all in the name of Jesus. Miracles are still happening today when the church heals like Jesus healed. Addicts are finding recovery. Criminals are being rehabilitated. Marriages are being restored. Young people are finding a calling. Elderly people are finding a purpose. When the church is a conduit of God's grace and they channel it, people find Jesus' healing touch still today. The great physician is still touching the lives of sinners. 
Jesus is still tending to the needs of sin-sick souls and calling them to repentance and salvation. And I believe and am confident the church is meant to be a place of refuge and restoration for them. The church is called to care for the souls of those Jesus is moving and working in. We're not the cure. The church is not the cure. Christ is the cure. But the church is called to have open arms and open hearts for those Jesus is tending to. You can heal like Jesus healed. You've been touched by Jesus. God is working in your life. You have a story, and it may be that just that kind of person God wants to use to help someone else he's working on. And you're not doing this alone or on your own power. The Holy Spirit will be with you. The Spirit of God, which was in Christ Jesus, is in you. Nor should you cease letting God continually heal and work on you. You can't heal someone if you're going to be bleeding all over them. We need to be mindful of our own treatment plan with Jesus if we're best to help others. And nor should we think that we're the heroes of anyone's story. Jesus is still the hero. We're not. We're just participants with him. Will you let Jesus use you? Maybe someone needs to be touched by Jesus through you through what you say, what you do. Christ is opening up triage centers in this world for those being cured of sin. And I believe God has opened up one right here at 705 Court Street if, it's, if we're willing to be it because it's going to take all of us. As those previously touched by Jesus on the road to recovery from sin, striving to be sanctified, not simply saved, admittedly not perfect people, are we willing to be helping people heal from their swoons of sin. Can we heal like Jesus healed? He's inviting us to participate with him as he is still healing the world, curing spiritual blindness of men and women in this world. Jesus is still healing people of physical ailments and infirmities. He's still orchestrating medical-defying recoveries and cures. May we not forget that reality. As a healer, as the great physician, Jesus is still moving and working in hospital rooms, rehab facilities, cancer centers, care homes, and other places for those who are in pain or are hurting or who are sick and need treatment. Jesus is still working through the ingenuity and advancement and dedication of modern medicine and physicians and still astounding them every now and then when treatment plans run their course. But Jesus is also healing the world of humans' sin problem, and he's inviting us, the church, to join him in doing so. What does it look like for you to heal like Jesus healed? Do what Jesus did. Heal like Jesus healed.